The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Bud Elliott. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Danny Cannell. I'm Chip Patterson. Happy Monday. Happy Presidents to you. May you be the, uh, the, the president of your day today. Did you just wish me happy Presidents? Happy pre- happy presence here on your President's Day. Uh, we've got uh, some questions to get to, but this is uh, great because our regularly scheduled podcast happens to line up with probably the biggest news that maybe we might have this week. It's also sets in motion a lot of fun content that we're going to have for you here on the Cover 3 podcast as on Sunday night reports started uh, to leak out that UCF had identified Gus Malzahn as the top candidate for the job. Dennis Dodd among those reporting. And then on Monday, the news made official Gus Malzahn will be the next head coach of the UCF Knights. Uh, The the coaching carousel is now complete, so we'll be able to uh, wrap that up with some coaching grades coming up for you soon. But for Gus Malzahn and UCF, there's uh, I, I think there's two stories to this because Gus Malzahn could have taken his buyout money from Auburn. He could have played golf. Like I, I don't know if y'all saw. Sure seems like he's been enjoying his time off here in at least the few initial weeks of just getting out there, playing some golf, living on that uh, Auburn buyout money. But, you know, he also gets to take what I believe is one of the maybe five top group of five jobs in the sport, a, a job that might arguably be uh, more attractive than some power five jobs, at least with its uh, ability to have some success. And so I, I think that those are the two things that I'm most interested in. But of course, I want to hear what angles stand out to you. Uh, you know, has UCF upgraded from Josh Heupel in this hire? Do you think that Gus Malzahn is a long-term answer for UCF? Uh, a lot of fun stuff to get to as a very, very successful SEC coach, at least in terms of win percentage and, and you know, having a SEC championship and a national championship game appearance. Now he is back in coaching. Um, I guess, like, Bud, you've got the, uh, the UCF friends on the, the neighborhood group chat, right? What's, for, what's, what's the buzz? And then I know that you've also got some sources back there uh, around UCF. So do you, do you think that this is being received well within the UCF community? Yeah, it, it, it definitely is. If the group chat is is to be the judge, uh, they they think they you know hit a home run. Um, obviously, like he's been very successful at Auburn. Auburn is a pretty tough job relative to the expectations that, that they have there. Um, the Gus Malzahn, offensive genius, is, is being thrown around a little bit. You know, I I don't know if Gus Malzahn is still an offensive genius, but I think the floor you get with Gus Malzahn, assuming he's motivated and, and actually wants to be, you know, at this and doesn't see it as just kind of a, a real temporary stop. Uh, is is pretty high, right? Like Gus Malzahn, he may not, you know, reach the, the the heights that Scott Frost reached, but I have a hard time seeing Gus Malzahn not work out there because he's very competent as a coach. He knows what he's doing. Um, I I thought that they were going to look maybe at a Sean Lewis mm-hmm. or perhaps at a, a Jeff Levy or Rhett Lashley, uh, but you know Malzahn is certainly more proven 
than any of those guys are. Maybe not quite as exciting from a tempo, you know, offense spread it out, throw it all the time standpoint. And he, you know, has really struggled developing quarterbacks over the last, I don't know, decade or so. But the people down here seem pretty happy with this. My, I mean, yeah, I, I think that if you just look at the hire, it's like, okay, well, we got Auburn's coach. And I think that that on its own, it's a known name. There is somewhat of a pedigree. I agree. There's a high floor. But the one thing that's kind of confusing to me is like when, when Heupel left for Tennessee, a thing I heard from UCF fans was they weren't all that, a lot of them, it was kind of a similar situation to Harson at Boise State where some of them we're kind of just like, yeah, no, we're fine with it. And the big reason was because Heupel's recruiting had dropped off in their eyes in the last years. Like UCF hadn't been recruiting at the same level as Cincinnati or even like Houston in the AAC. And isn't one of the reasons Albert fans wanted rid of Gus Malzahn because he wasn't recruiting well enough? Yeah. they uh, At one point in this recruiting cycle, they had zero recruits from Georgia. So, so so it's that's so it's like UCF fans are excited to hire a coach who was just partially fired because he wasn't recruiting well enough and they were fine seeing their last coach go because he wasn't recruiting well enough but they know the name. Yeah. I I will say I like look Auburn had some good classes. I mean they it, no I yeah. mean it's it's been a t- it's had like top 15 Yeah, classes it's like 10 they were in that Augusta 10 to 15 range, right? Yeah, it's just it wasn't good enough for what S- Auburn wanted and what you need to do in the SEC to compete for, you know, division titles and SEC titles. So it's just it's like that whole weird kind of dichotomy of it. But recruiting success at UCF most reasonable UCF fans who I know, they don't think they're ever going to be pulling kids, not, not in the near future, from Miami, Florida, Florida State, right? Recruiting wins at UCF are, you know, beating out a kid who Wisconsin's like, hey, we may or may not have, have you know, have room for you in this class. Get, getting some of those guys to stay in the state of Florida rather than going to, you know, certainly Wisconsin doesn't fit this, but, you know, some northern kind of lower tier P5, beating Purdue out, right? Beating, you know, Illinois out for, for a kid that comes, just because it's a P5 offer, doesn't mean you have to go take it like that. That's the recruiting success at UCF. I, I think Gus could do that. Yeah. I, and my other thing, like you mentioned, the development of quarterbacks, that is my one. Because like, if you look at Auburn the last years, I think that's really what doomed Malzahn more than anything is that his quarterbacks, for the most part, never really improved very much from when they would get there as they went along, like Nick Marshall did. But other than that, I don't know who the developmental success story is for Gus Malzahn quarterbacks at Auburn. And I think that if I'm at UCF and I see that kind of what the success I've had with quarterbacks there in recent years, that would be a concern. Now, I don't want to come in here and be like, I think this is a bad hire because I don't. I think it's a good hire for UCF and I think it could work out very well for them. It's just I don't see this as a home run hire. And I feel like a lot of the reaction I've seen and heard in the limited time since this stuff broke on Sunday night is that this is a home run hire. And I don't I, I don't I think I see I see this as just a solid hire. I think it's a good hire. I thought both sides would be happy, um, but I do think there are some causes for concern. Recruiting may be one of them, but I would say what type of offense are you going to run? I mean, is this going to fit Dylan Gabriel? Like he's getting a pretty good quarterback, so the expectation is going to be, hey, you're, you want, we use that term, offensive genius. Like this offense shouldn't see much drop-off. You still should be – Top 10. They were top three, I think, this year. They've been top five the last few years under Josh Heupel. Like, the expectation is going to be this thing should just keep rolling. And, like, I, I think it makes sense. I think it's a, I think it was a, for, uh, for the new athletic director for Terry Mohajer, I think it's a, it sells to the fan base. Like, it, it's an easy hire. And they had to go get somebody that was kind of big and splashy, I think. And it was probably the best option available. But I'm very curious to see how this works out. Like I, I, I home run hire is a term I just can't use anymore, no matter what it is. I mean, it just, and I'm guilty of using it with Danny White when he was hired as athletic director at Tennessee because it did fit all the pieces. It's felt right, but who knows? Who knows how the heck that's going to work out? This one feels good, but I do think. And you look back over the success of this program. Even George O'Leary mixed in eleven and three, twelve and one seasons in there before Scott Frost went thirteen and zero. So this is a fan base that probably is one of those, you know, that the ones we don't think about. We typically think about Florida and Ohio State and Auburn and Alabama as 
kind of unrealistic expectations of we should be in the conference championship every in the national title hunt every year. I think UCF fans are starting to feel like, Hey, we should be in the playoff conversation every year. You know, we should be in that top eight discussion. And if they're not like, I just wonder, like mentioning that some UCF fans were kind of like, Oh good. We're on from Josh Heupel onto the next. <laughs> you better be careful what you wish for. Danny, one thing interesting that you mentioned about Dylan Gabriel what UCF's been running now for for a couple of years has largely been sort of that Baylorish system, right? You you, know, you have receivers outside the numbers, the, the whole spitting on the sidelines thing. I I do think that that former high school coaches fraternity is is fairly tight. Um, and if you recall, I, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline on this, but wasn't one of the reasons why Auburn got Jarrett Stidham because. Gus and and Bryles, you know, were knew each other. I don't want to imply any kind of endorsement. Obviously, what happened at Baylor, but like, you know, I, I remember that whole thing. And Gabriel transferred, so I wonder if if he might not pick pick that coaching tree's brain a little bit for hey, you know, why do you guys do this? Why do you guys do that? Can can he incorporate some of those existing elements in to his system and maybe kind of a little more slowly transition in his system because that that is a pretty unique thing that that UCF and you know, Arkansas and, and formerly Baylor do. And the book, literally the book that Gus wrote is, I mean, to me, I mean, the, again, I'm, I'm just saying the, the title, it's, it's the hurry up, no huddle. It's not necessarily specifically saying this putt-putt offense that we don't have a downfield passing attack for. You know, that just might have been looking at the, the limitations of the quarterback you have or, or the offensive line that you've got where you feel like you've got to use misdirection. I mean, the, it, is a, it is a tempo play that I associate with Gus Malzahn. It's just that Gus Malzahn put in practice seems like uh, it is a step away from the, the UCF downfield passing attack. But I think that especially with a quarterback like Dylan Gabriel, it is unfair for me to apply some of that same slander that I put all on the Cover 3 podcast when I called Auburn a putt-putt offense that just used a bunch of gimmicks to hold things together while their defensive line dominated during the 2019 season. You know, I, I should not apply that moving forward to my expectations. But, I mean, it's it's in my recent memory. I mean, is, is, is that one of those things where uh, – we have to look to Gus Malzahn and consider this an opportunity for him where he can show that he's got more wrinkles. He's got the ability to evolve. He's got um, you know an, an opportunity here because the skill position talent that he's inheriting and the skill position talent that he should be able to recruit, uh, it should be an open playbook in terms of what he's able to do with UCF offensively. And that's another thing I'm wondering, too. Is this a situation where Gus sees UCF as a very good job? Like, it's Chip, you mentioned it's one of the top five group of five jobs. I would say it's top two or three at worst. Is is Gus looking at this as like, hey, I could have just sat out and waited, but this is too good of an opportunity. I'm going to go to UCF and I'm just going to, you know, chill there until I'm done chilling and then call it a career. Or is he going to UCF because he sees this as a chance to really quickly rehab his image and then jump back into a power five gig? I mean, Sam Pittman looking over his shoulder now, wait for Josh Heupel to get fired before the end of his first contract and for me to lose my bet to Bud on that one. I mean, like that... UCF is is a stepping stone. I mean, that's that's got to be a concern if you're a UCF fan because if Gus Mal, Gus Malzahn, if I was to crystal ball this, uh, okay, side bets, um, side bets, side bets, over under years Gus Malzahn spends at UCF three and a half under. Ooh. We got odds on this or just straight up? I think we just got to go. I would have set it at two and a half, honestly. Yeah, I would have <laughs> set it at two and a half. Danny wants something under two. <laughs> what do you think, bud? Although there's a piece of me too, though, that wonders, like if the shifting landscape of college football, if you UCF actually got access to the playoff, however that comes about, whether it was expansion and they guarantee a group of five teams somehow where it's, you know, you actually get a chance then does that job become more attractive? If somehow there was conference realignment, it came power five, then I think it's a slam dunk. And then that's the scenario I think I talked about in the last podcast about Gary Patterson at TCU, where all of a sudden that becomes a great gig. Like it's, it's, it's a great gig if you're at UCF and you have access to the playoffs. So 
if there's no change to the system and it's not in the horizon, I would take under three and a half for sure. I'm going to sit this one out. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing two unders and, and, uh, and, and chips taking over, I guess. Right. I'm setting the line. Okay. So both <laughs> yeah, of you got, yeah, right, so, ch- so chip, chip is not the house then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And this, in this particular one, I, th- I think as, as setting the line, I, I think that I get to be uh get to be the house on this one. All right. I'll, I'll mark it down two under three and a half. All right. I, I got another question. Cause Danny, you just mentioned it and I've heard other people mention this in, in recent weeks and everything like the possibility of conference realignment and UCF joining a power five conference. Where does that talk come from? Am I just not paying any attention to like some secret backroom stuff? Because <laughs> I've heard a lot of talk about the possibility, but I just haven't seen any actual evidence that we're going to see that kind of realignment at any point in the future. Do you have off season? Yeah, no, no, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I think you could make an argument that history is what you're using, where if you trace college football back uh, over the years, you don't go more than what, eight years, eight, nine years without seeing some conference realignment. And I think that when it's, we're starting to tick up on it being about seven, eight years since that 2014 kind of wave. And I, I, that was the, I mean, hold on. You already picked this one up. I'm, I'm, I'm about to drop it. I was having a conversation with former ACC commissioner John Swafford one time and, I was, <laughs> and he put me in my place. He showed his experience and he said, look, there's conference realignment all the time. Just look back through the history of college sports. You know, you conferences dissolve, they realign, schools move around. It, it's just something that has happened frequently. Some of the reasons are political. Some of the reasons are competitive, but the, the nature of conference realignment is not something that scares the leadership within college athletics just because it's been always going on. It doesn't happen every single year, but it certainly happens on some sort of revolving time as a circle, flat circle timetable. Look, see, I I look at conference realignment in the future and I don't think of it as what we saw in 2014 where like, you know, the big conferences are just going to grab up some schools to get TV deals. I don't think that's what we're going to see because I do think that, with the likely expansion of the college football playoff from that angle, once the group of five kind of gets its, you know, spot at the table in that, I think that alignment's going to realignment's going to become less of a demand for schools like UCF or Houston or Boise state. Although I think Boise state is kind of done with the mountain West in some ways, no matter what happens. But I, I, I think that conference realignment in the future is more going to be, a complete shift in college football in that we're going to see kind of like, you know, the bigger schools just form their own quote unquote league, not really realigned conferences. It's just like the power five is just going to completely separate from everybody else and go do its own thing. But don't you think in that process, there are going to be some current power five schools that maybe don't get in and the UCFs and Houston's and Cincinnati's the world do get in, which that's, that's what I'm like kind of looking forward yeah. to. If that's when, if you get that type of access and that's the shift that you see, there's the Knight Commission that said they should do this already. There's all these major shifting landscape of name, image, and likeness and the NCAA losing all this power. And it's there's going to be a shift, a massive shift in what college football looks like. It's just a matter of when it happens. Like, And we can say, well, there's six years left on the contract. I don't even know if we make it to the end of the college football playoff contract before seeing some of this shift. There's just things are moving fast. It's been well, legally where the NCAA can't really do anything about it. You can't break a contract any they're sacred. <laughs> That's right. I mean Big 12's got 10 teams. Like if you want to, if you want to start talking about like the the most base level like conference expansion, conference realignment, the first move in conference expansion is the Big 12 who and I I mean had some lovey-dovey eyes for a little school in Tallahassee back when things were looking real uncertain for the ACC there for a hot second, you know, as Maryland's going to the big 10 and Georgia tech is uh, supposedly sending some you up text to Jim Delaney and big 12s like, yo, let's go get Florida state and Clemson. Like big 12's got 10 teams. If they want to go and uh, fetch themselves a little Florida presence, 
I kind of can think of one school be pretty good, but we will see. Uh, so all, all in all, it sounds like we've got no one's going to go home run higher. We've got a feels good. And I like the feel test, Danny. I might start using that just sort of in all professional settings. Like, hmm, feels good. You know, just like a, just, just like a cozy, cozy little jacket. And then that could get dangerous. So <laughs> in a corporate setting, especially, well, and especially when we're talking about in Orlando, um, yeah. <laughs> a solid hire. And then bud, you know, seem pretty good hire. Is it an upgrade from Josh Heupel? Yeah, I, I think so. Okay. I think Me too. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say upgrade from Josh Heupel, uh, Gus Malzahn back in action. Very, very excited about that the, I'm also excited because well, hold on. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to change course here because both Bud and I think that Gus is an upgrade over Hypel. So should Tennessee have hired Malzahn instead of Hypel? <laughs> yes. But that question assumes that, that Malzahn would have taken the Tennessee job. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of, I really question if he would have. <laughs> so is UCF a better job than Tennessee in <laughs> In its current formulation, no doubt. In the 2021 season, yes. Probably for the next three years, unless something really weird happens with the result of all this evidence that Tennessee allegedly has to fire 10 people related to recruiting violations. I mean, if that doesn't turn into some kind of probation sanctions type thing, then I think Tennessee's a better job. Well, can we we edit it? to where we take out the context that you put and just have Bud saying that UCF is a better job than Tennessee. And can we <laughs> yes. put that out on social as the, as the promo for this show? Oh hey, gosh. let's do it. Tennessee fans will get, will get, will get fired up even with the context. I, 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 I say we leave it in just, and just see how rational they are. Guys. I, I know, I know that Danny and Bud are excited about this. The champions. That's right. The Champions League is back. And if you're a soccer fan, you should be listening to Kegolazzo, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join the team for two, count them, uno, dos episodes a day, including daily previews and recaps for all the Champions League and Europa knockout stage action. You can find Kegolazzo on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to cover three. Don't wait to download and subscribe to make Kegelazzo your ultimate audio destination for soccer and Champions League coverage. CBS Sports HQ will have you with tons of wall-to-wall coverage of all the action this week. Again, Tuesday and Wednesday, going to be absolutely loaded for Champions League. Uh, CBS Sports Network, CBS All Access. Uh, It's going to be a a really fun week uh, across the ponds for European football. Tom, do we have any locks that you just want to throw out here? I was going to ask, do you want to do Champions League locks or what? Uh, oh, did, did Chip say Spotify? Yeah. Chip, can, Chip, you can follow us on Spotify as well. Let, let, let's, let's hit our Spotify bet <laughs> that we have with, with the brass at CBS. Guys, we are on Spotify. Spotify is not just for music. Listen to Cover 3 Podcast on Spotify. Follow and stream on Spotify. You can also see us on YouTube.com. And if you want to go see uh, a man slowly succumb to a stomach virus, check out the last episode on YouTube as, uh, as the, the stomach virus that had gotten uh, my seven-month-old child and my wife. I thought I had escaped it. I thought I had beaten it. And about midway through the episode, you can see my chair start to swivel a little bit. My face starts to get a little bit pale. And if we had to go 20 minutes longer, things could have been dicey. If you're really sick and want to get into it, there's video evidence of it. Go check it out from uh, that last mailbag episode. That would have done some numbers. Yeah. <laughs> if I had, what? if you it had, on camera, you think about the show, Chip. Yeah. Chip. Ne- next time, just let it go. Just give in. Yeah, just go. <laughs> Coming up on the other side, speaking of the mailbag, we've got some bud rebuttal, some rebuttal. Uh, to some of our answers from the mailbag episode, uh, some other questions that we want to make sure to get to that and more next. The perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, 
Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul. The designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So a very interesting discussion came up when we were talking about uh, the the zigging and zagging, uh, you know, would like running the option in power five and and trying to to figure out ways uh, to be unique. We actually have from Barton and Bud. You know, this was uh, this was many Barton and Bud listeners have come to join us here at Cover Three. We very much appreciate you. So I'm sure that you will remember this conversation as well. But we want to play a clip from a September episode here addressing uh, some of that same discussion. Huh. I actually, are, I I texted Josh Pate about this the other morning because it's something he said on on his Late Kick uh, show, which y'all should watch on YouTube. And I I can't wholly dismiss this idea that, that eventually we, we could go back to smash mouth, but there has to be a reason to go back. And to me, the only two reasons would be a rule change that makes passing uh, more difficult, right. Or, or to dissuade teams from passing. I, I don't know what, what that rule change would be. Maybe roll back some of the illegal contact and, you know, pass interference stuff that I, I think is frankly, you know, kind of unfair to defenses. Uh, or if we reek, or excuse me, if we reach like, peak passing efficiency to where like clearly we've topped out passing efficiency wise and it starts to, to sl- you know, to, to kind of slide back and, and defense figure it out. Now, I know there's a lot of narrative out there. Hey, everybody's recruiting five, six, seven defensive backs and you know, everybody's running base, not, you know, base time, base nickel, all that stuff. And, and there's some truth to that. However, Barton passing games keep getting better every year in spite of the fact that defense is now, for about a half, half decade, have been specifically designed to stop them. Like, there's really no evidence that teams are getting better defending these passing attacks. In fact, it's going exactly the opposite way. And until we reach a point to where, like, passing becomes less efficient, no. It, it, and honestly, man, like, the downside to passing is not there anymore. It used to be, like, what's that old coaching phrase, right? Remember this? Like, there's three things that can happen in a pass play, and two of them are bad you know, the, the interception or the sack or, you know, whatever it was. That's not there anymore, man. You got guys like Tua against FBS competition throwing 33 touchdowns and three picks. Like, teams are not turning the football over anymore like like, like they were. Like, the, the turnover numbers and, and the pick numbers are way down. They're, they're finding the open guys. They're finding them quickly. They're, they're keeping the same level of explosion. It's not just dink and duck. I mean, they're aggressively pushing the ball down the field without the negative externality of turnovers that you would think would come with extra passing. And in previous generations, like when you and I were growing up, these teams that checked all around, they just weren't that efficient. Now these passing attacks are so efficient, and passing the football is so much more rewarding, even when you factor in the potential negatives, than running the ball is now for the most part, that I, I don't see teams going totally back to some sort of you know multiple tight end downhill running game as a base offense. Now, I think we have a like a spinoff conversation here as well. If the big teams are running these sort of underdog strategies that like the Texas Techs and the Kentuckys with how Mummy and them were running years ago or, or similar, the advantage for the small teams is now gone. So maybe it won't be like, you know, Tennessee decides they, they want to get in three tight ends and, and, and pound the rocket people. Maybe it's going back to some triple option type concepts or something for these lower level teams who now no longer are running something that is all that unique. But I, man, until passing is just so much more efficient than running now. And there's almost no penalty for it. Rebuttal, rebuttal. 
I don't know. I, I just I, I listened to to the mailbag you guys did that dropped on Friday, which was which, which was awesome. And I was like, man, I I can kind of see what what Tom and Danny are saying, but I just think the timeline for this happening, at least across the sport, is just way far off in the distance. I mean, like even this year, passing got got more efficient. It, SEC scoring was up well almost three points a game in in conference, which is not an insignificant number. Um, I just teams are getting so much better at chucking it around. I, I have a real hard time seeing guys say, okay, yeah, like let's, let's go ahead and take our eight yards per attempt passing and go back to you know running the ball, even though we're able to do it for like four yards a clip. What if they adjusted the rule with offensive linemen downfield or, or they went to the end it's three yards. Now, what if they went to one yard or they started enforcing it? Cause they don't even enforce it now at three yards and it is a massive advantage and it is unfair. And this is from an offensive player. Like it's all, it's impossible to defend nowadays that's why you are seeing so much of this offensive firepower if there was that type of rule change which i don't think a lot of people would say oh that's going to kill the passing game i don't think it would kill it but like something like that could send the numbers back a little bit more normal where they're not because it's it's insane i mean i look at some of these numbers that teams are putting up quarterbacks are putting up and it's outrageous like you should not be able to do this in 11 on 11 in a seven on seven league yeah, but when you're getting tackled and live, it's insane to be completing 75% of your passes and have 35-plus touchdowns with less than five interceptions. That's just remarkable. Dan, yeah. don't you think that would lead – sorry, go ahead, Tom. No, I was going to say, I don't think the change is going to come within the next few years. I, I just think – because, I mean, if you look at how long it took for passing to reach this level because like when was the forward pass first introduced you know what i mean it's like it's been nearly a century of throwing the ball for teams to kind of finally figure it out like hey wait a minute this is this is better than running it so it's not like this is something i I think that as we go as the sport evolves things will happen quicker than they have in the past obviously but it's just I think that at some point, kind of like what you were saying in that snippet, is there are going to be teams out there that realize, hey, the best way we could get an advantage now, like we saw with teams going to that spread kind of passing attack and spreading everybody out, is teams are going to look at the teams that they're now facing and have to beat and saying, the only way we can beat these guys is to be more compact and bigger and kind of run the ball at them and be more physical because they we, we don't have the talent. And now that could be the quote-unquote market inefficiency that they have to exploit for success. And I think that if we follow the same kind of cycle we just saw where we've seen the Alabamas of the world have to adopt to what the little guy was doing in order to kind of, you know, cause it was working and it's been perfected and now that's better for them. We could see a similar situation where everybody does go kind of smash mouth. I don't think we'll ever get back to like rugby scrum, you know, three yards <laughs> in a cloud of dust football. I think the passing is always going to be in a very efficient way of moving the ball, putting up points. So it's not going to go away. I just wouldn't be surprised if we see some sort of step forward in the running game that helps bring that back into, you know, being cool again, I guess is the way to put it. I, I could see that. I, I think to Danny's point about, about the downfield, it, yes, it would hurt passing games some because you would just have fewer wide open guys, right? Like, I mean, the, traditionally busted coverages were from, you know, busting an assignment, right? Or, or you, you somehow tricked them. Now you're tricking them in some ways by having a tackle block a safety at seven yards like look guys the safety played it right by the rules of the game and Devontae Smith is 15 yards behind him downfield because technically that that offensive lineman is not supposed to be that deep every single thing this guy has learned from the time he was probably four or five years old playing pop Warner ball is all right if this guy gets out out out, out to this you know this deep I'm coming downhill this is run right or or some kind of screen not Mm -hmm. you know a post over my Mm -hmm. head that would change things some. I, yeah, Tom, I, I could see it like on a you know case by case basis. If to where if you're running a lot of double tight stuff and you're running the ball, you're almost a special prep, right? Like not to the yeah. level of option, but you know some of these guys have never really played that, so it, it maybe you get some kind of efficiency advantage there. I, I also strongly disagree that punting is going to become a better play uh, in, in the future. I, I I think we actually might get to a point where teams decide not to scholarship punters what right? like if you're only, if you're only, yeah if you're only doing it like once or twice a game not my america is that really worth the scholarship <laughs> no, 
No, I, I agree. I, I think that we're far more likely to have an instance of there being no more punting ever again than we will of punting going back to Nouveau. I was just kind of using that as an example of the way that things kind of sure. just shift with the way that the analytics push us where they tell us, well, no, stupid, go for it on fourth down, fourth and four, fourth and five, go for it. You're more likely to get points in the long run doing that than you are to punt from your, you know, your opponent's 42. But I just think that that math is going to change. Like the more teams get aggressive on fourth down, those numbers are going to change. They're not going to be more effective than the other options. So that's what I was kind of trying to bring up. Like the numbers are always going to be shifting depending on what the norm is at the time in the sport. Like maybe teams don't practice fielding punts or returning punts. And all of a sudden you you bring it out there, kind of like bunting in baseball. Now it's still a bad play, but like, Sometimes the, the results are hilarious because teams don't bunt anymore. Yeah, if, if you look at special teams like at the NFL level and we're seeing it at the college level, they really aren't returning punts anymore. Like punt returners now, your main goal is to either get the ball before it pins you deep or just catch it. That's it. Just get the best field position you can. Don't try to return it. Don't do anything. Don't risk turning the ball over, muffing a punt, and giving them a great scoring opportunity. Because if you look – the number of punt returns at both the NFL and college level are decreasing on an annual basis. I cannot believe all this disgusting talk about no punting in football. And some of it's probably (laughs) practice time too, at least at the college level, because you get such a limited amount of time to practice. Maybe you don't want to spend as much working on your punt return and your punt team. Tom Hackett and Johnny Townsend are spitting on the floor right now. I can't believe what y'all are saying. I'm saving all this money to send little punt Patterson to Australia so that I can get him a little scholarship so he can hit these little cradle corners, pin them inside the five. I don't, know. I don't even know. I don't even know what's up, up or down anymore. It's ridiculous. Uh, you also, uh, the, I know, got a little note that another rebuttal that uh, that Bud wanted to offer was about some of our conversation to Clemson. For those who haven't listened to the mailbag episode, the question came in that with uh, the offensive success that Ohio State and LSU have had in Clemson's last two college football playoff games, the national championship game loss to LSU in 2019, the national semifinal loss to Ohio State, is there uh, something to be concerned about for Brent Venables and this Clemson team? I remember that uh, we, A, pointed out the ridiculous third-in-the-country returning production ranking that Clemson does have on the defensive side of the ball. That should be something that's encouraging. Uh, I, I definitely had a little bit of a criticism for the just the floor of the talent level of that past defense. And I know that Dabo Sweeney even has said, he didn't say it this year, but he has even discussed um, how thin, you know, over a couple of recruiting cycles where a couple players, you know, go pro early. And then all of a sudden he looks at his secondary. He's like, yikes, you know, we've, uh, I wasn't really expecting uh, him to be able to go pro right now. And now we've got a little bit of a hole. So, you know, bud, the, you know, is it a, is it a talent thing? Is it a returning production thing? Or is it, is it not anything to be concerned about at all uh, in terms of Clemson defensively based on those two results? Again, I think, I think it's almost an average of 589 yards between those two losses, you know, giving up a ton of points in both of them too. I I just think, I think it was mostly a personnel thing, right? Like I, I don't think the way Venables called the game, I think it was largely a reaction to the personnel they had or importantly, you know, didn't have, right? I, I, I knew some guys on, on that staff going into the LSU game and they really didn't think they had a great shot, right? Because they, they did not think they could get pressure on Burrow without blitzing a lot. And they confused him at times. I actually thought Venable's game plan was one of the better ones that people threw at LSU. Probably the Kevin Steele game plan in 2019 was, was the best one anybody had against LSU. But like, they lost so many important defensive linemen off that you know, 2016, 2017, 2018 run. And they had like maybe a miss or two in recruiting. They were super like they didn't, they didn't have the dudes in 19 up front. They had to be really creative and blitz all the time. And eventually like one of the best quarterbacks we've ever seen in college football uh, beat them and some insane receivers as well. I think in 2020, they thought they would have some, the guys up front and, you know, due to injuries like Xavier Thomas and Tyler Davis was really, was rarely healthy and, you know, Murphy and Brzee were true freshmen, and they played well for true freshmen. But I, I think up front this year, Clemson's going to be back with a vengeance. Right? I mean, you, you get second year Murphy, second year Brzee. Hopefully, you get Tyler Davis to stay healthy for the year. Maybe Xavier Thomas, you, you, he plays to his potential. He's coming back for another year. You know, Henry. I, I think that like you're going to see a little bit less 
super aggressive style from Clemson. And, and I think we'll forget that whole conversation, you know, and, and then the guys that they have in back who are sort of like super college players, not really going to be much in the NFL because of athleticism. They don't look nearly as bad if, you know, if, if they're part of one of seven guys in zone coverage, as opposed to, you know, kind of find the duck. All right, let's dive back into some of these questions. Uh, this one comes from MSW. Among Penn State fans, there is somewhat of a consensus that Franklin took COVID very seriously, which kept our cases very low, which also but also led to a lack of effectiveness on the field. I know Boston College had almost no cases. Other teams like LSU had almost the entire team get it. Do you think coaches will use their safety procedures as a way to convince students and parents that their program is safe and will watch out for their kids? Or will this kind of just be forgotten as a vaccine becomes available in a fall season, hopefully looks more normal? Can I tack- tackle this one? Heck yeah. Please. I think coaches, and this is not respective to James Franklin or any of the programs that we're talking about, they will adjust the messaging accordingly. And they'll do their research. They'll find out, hey, does this kid, does he want me to say that we were going to do whatever it took to play football? Then, yeah, he's going to go say, look, we we didn't miss a beat. We didn't miss any games. If the research tells them that the parents were really nervous about COVID, they're going to say, hey, we tested three times a week. We held guys out. We even missed some games. We were so concerned about it. The, they will adjust the message according to which the, what the recruit wants to hear. No doubt about it. I, it'll be used against them the other way. Like SEC coaches will be saying, didn't you watch the Big Ten? They don't care about football. They almost canceled their season. We were going to play. Like the Big Ten will be like, those guys were reckless with their players. We, you know, we were, we, we care, care about your about children. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, once the vaccine is widely available, the COVID coronavirus pandemic recruiting pitch shelfing will have like a shelf life of maybe two more seasons at most. Because mm-hmm. we'll just, okay, it'll be like anything else that we've got a, a vaccine for, you know, like uh, we got med- we got over-the-counter medicine for. It's just going to be something we all forget and move on from because, I mean, that's just human nature. <laughs> Do you think next year, this football season, we'll have – COVID list, like on the bottom line, it'll say, you know, Trevor Lawrence out COVID list. Do you think we'll I hope have- not? I know. I don't either, but I'm very genuinely curious to know if we are in, what is it? Six months. Yeah. It's going to depend on the next five months or so. I think right. it's done and how much of it gets done. I mean, I, God, I would just love for us to have <laughs> a normal season, not even, not even a normal season. I would just like to have a, a day where I woke up and, <laughs> this is not any kind of topic that I ever have to concern myself with again. I think that coaches will mostly move on. I think that for the most part, there'll be too many other things that you can negatively recruit or positively recruit on. And the forward focusing nature of college football coaches. I, it def, I think, I think that two seasons is probably the max. I might even wonder if it, it could be a little bit less. It's definitely going to be on a family by family, parent by parent. Where do you live? You know, what school are you? You know, what did, who are you recruiting against? All those things are absolutely going to be a factor. But again, hoping that we are in a position that you're not sweating the COVID list every single Saturday morning and hoping that we're in a position where there are at least like some fans in the stands for the fall. I think that there'll just be so much enthusiasm to just take your mindset and move it forward. I, d- I don't see it being a huge factor. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, the one thing I, I think they will be used in a positive way for the schools that you know did have low case numbers. I don't know that I will see it being used in, in negative recruiting quite as much because if you say like, Hey, look, look, we're going up against this school, look how many coronavirus cases they had in some ways, you're also criticizing the players at that school. And then you're sort of, uh, you know, stigmatizing somebody who has got COVID, which there's a pretty good chance somebody in this kid's family and perhaps immediate family did get it. And then mm. you don't want to be in a situation where you're like, yeah, look, they got COVID. They did clearly did something wrong, right? Where there's, you know, a chance you can do pretty much everything right and still, you know, still get it. So I, I think you'd use it more just in a positive, hey, we, we, we really had great compliance. Everybody really, you know, marched to, to be the same drummer here and we were able to stay safe. 
but all those it brought LSU, us closer together as a team. Sure. Yeah, yeah, but all those LSU players that allegedly, 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 allegedly went to Tigerland and then all came back with an outbreak of COVID. Like that's that's you could you could point at that behavior, right? <laughs> yeah, probably could. Yeah, you probably could. Um, all right. This uh next question comes from RN Ags. Bud's the perfect fit to replace Barton. Best non-team specific pod on the market hands down. Uh, what 2020 Power 5... Oh, we did that one. Power 5 year one coach is not going to make it through his first contract. Oh, shoot. Well, uh, did, my bad. <laughs> I must just grab this one because it said Bud's the perfect fit to replace yeah. Barton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, just, <laughs> you were scrolling through the questions like, ooh, this one looks good. Bud is perfect. Uh, let's see. Hi, guys. Love the podcast. You guys are the best ones out there, and I've listened to them all. Nice to have Bud on. Great addition. I do miss Barton's humor for sure. Barton's not funny. Uh, I know you are... Barton's humor. (laughs) I know you are a tongue-in-cheek Georgia podcast, and as Danny has mentioned several times, we will be triumphantly returning to be a Georgia podcast full-throatedly in 2021 with uh, with JT Daniels back in the fold. Uh, But can you give Georgia Tech some positive vibes? Um after all you do hear about tech players after all do you hear every year about tech players being arrested like in athens no you just hear about them graduating what's with the yellow jackets based in a vibrant city that attracts all kinds of young people shouldn't they always be in the hunt for a division title Mm, no cheap shot at your rifle he also just wrote is it just the academics that are keeping them from being top tier? And he misspelled the word academics. So that is, I don't know, man. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, from a recruiting standpoint, like tech does well. I think Jeff Collins, w- when Paul Johnson was there, it was all about all these other coaches saying like, that's, that's a hidden gym job, right? We, we heard about Chad Morris wanting that job, you know, back when he was the, the coordinator at Clemson, there were a lot of coaches who pointed to that job and said like, there's, there's upward mobility there. There's potential there because of where you are, because the state of Georgia produced so much talent, et cetera. I think that this is going to be a telling year for Collins at Georgia Tech. Anytime you take over from the triple option, it's basically a defined multi-year rebuild. You're not going to be very good in, in year two because you have so you're kind of reteaching the game and you have to get all new type of players in there, especially along the offensive line, receiver, quarterback, et, et cetera. Um, the academics are a bit of a bar at times. Just the if you think about kind of the pool of players who are really good and the pool of players who who do take the required math classes, it, it doesn't always overlap. And so how much of that talent in the state of Georgia is actually available to you? I, I still think a pretty good amount because we see Stanford dip into Georgia. We see Notre Dame increasingly dip into Georgia and, and get kids of that caliber who have the academics to, you know, to go to those really good academic schools. Um but I, I think it's it's on the upswing. I just we'll see how well they do this year. I think it's going to be an important year for Collins. Hey, you so wrote a question when he mentioned academics that you know all students have to take calculus, buddy. I took calculus in high school. Let's not act like it's that <laughs> difficult. But I, I I think I mean I think that Georgia Tech is a job where you can have success. I think that with the talent base in that city and the location being in Atlanta, which is a desirous place for young people to be. There is a lot there to have success and a lot of stuff that's desirable, but I I don't think that it's a situation where you can just say, Oh yeah, Georgia tech should be competing for division titles every year and all that kind of stuff. I think it's a good place. I think it could have more success than it's had. I also think that as we saw with Paul Johnson running the option, you can have success there, but I don't think you need to run the option to have success at Georgia tech. So yeah, I, I think this is a good season or an important season for Jeff Collins. I agree with you, but I think that this is, we're going to, this is the year where he's done such a good job recruiting, but they've been so young the last few years that as you enter year three and going, and maybe because of like the whole COVID situation, we should probably push more towards year four. So maybe we shouldn't put like a whole, kind of okay it's now or never kind of situation for Georgia Tech going into 2021 but I do think that we need to see somewhat of a step forward as a lot of that talent he's brought in is matured and is entering year three and now in a lot of it into year two in this in the program I think that this is going to be an interesting team to watch in 2021 for sure 
remember when they beat Florida State? And it was like, ooh, is this going to be a, the, the, the turnaround? Like, this is Georgia Tech back. And I think we even discussed it on the pod. was like, well, maybe it's not that impressive. Maybe it's not a bad loss. The- <laughs> like, maybe it wasn't a bad loss for Mike Norvell, right? Yes, yes. And then it turned out it was a bad loss. <laughs> That's probably what we were thinking. Uh, but I, I think it's so hard to judge. I mean, this is going to be the hardest thing because it was – was such a weird year it's really hard to get a good pulse on it I do remember throughout the season reading some statistics how you know so much youth was on this offensive side of the ball at quarterback and running back and skill positions and they were gonna you know hey it's a youth movement that's coming through which clearly is the case and Bud alluded to it it is really really hard to go from a true triple option program to you know more conventional or doing any other scheme where I think it is, if you normally give a coach three to four years, there's like a year that's a wash completely, maybe even two years, because you have to clear out what you've got. I mean, even offensive linemen were smaller with Paul Johnson, where they were able to cut guys and get, and you want to get bigger, you want to get, you know, more acclimated, more players who are more suited to your style of play. And that takes time. You can't ask freshmen to come in and just contribute. You know, you can try to do it through the transfer portal. Uh, to get a, speed up that process a little bit, but it takes time. But I do think you should start to see results this year. Maybe not even in the win-loss column. That, maybe not eight or nine wins, but closer competitive games where you're in them towards the end of the game. Like we were talking about UCLA. Like if you look at UCLA schedule and their results, they didn't result. The then result wasn't a you know, five and one season or how many games they played. But if you looked at the games, they were all one score games. They were extremely competitive in most of their games. So that's what I would like to see from Georgia tech is getting more competitive in some of their losses. The thing that is frustrating is that for older Georgia tech fans throughout the, or at least, you know, even like the, the ones who uh, might not have even been children, but at least came in the, in the wake of it, it was one of the best programs in the country in the 1950s. You know, it, it was a program that was, it's won 15 conference titles. Uh, it won the, a share of the national championship in 1990. It has a, a, even a modern era of success where there was a, a run in the two division era of the ACC where the winner of Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech was going to win the division and was going to go play for the conference championship. So you've got several generations of what I would consider the expectations of success. The only problem being that 2014 division title, which was absolutely won, I think at five and three and with some tiebreakers, you know, that's, that's starting to, I might be wrong about that. That might've been 2012 to be honest, but um, you know, that's starting to slip away a little bit. The Justin Thomas team was good. The one that went on to beat Dak Prescott in Mississippi State in the bowl game, that was a really good Georgia Tech team. That's the last Georgia Tech team that I feel like uh, was was out here um, playing at a level that I, I thought was the Georgia Tech standard during that Georgia Tech-Virginia Tech run. Uh, you can reach that again, but I think as a fan, expecting that to be the case when you've got North Carolina cycling up, you've got Miami still trying to live up to those kinds of expectations. I, th- I think it's a little bit tough, right? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Next question from Platymus man. Great pod. Have been listening for years with the addition of, uh, these, these qualifiers are great. Uh, bud Alabama alum. True. Right. Graduate degree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the sec, ACC, Danny and chip, ACC boys get it right uh and Tom I (laughs) Tom Illinois Big Ten are represented the Pac-12 does not have any representation or the Big 12 this leads me to my question it has been said that the Pac-12 is falling further and further behind why is that less money spent on football poor commissioner leading the Pac-12 what would it take to bring the Pac-12 to a better standing in the eyes of college football Plus, I think a West Coast person on your pod would bring better dimension and understanding to the pod. Uh, giving a crap would probably be the best thing the Pac-12 can do. Because, I mean, when it, if you look at the way conferences approach sports, like the SEC has always been 
a football conference. Football was more important than anything else. It was culture-wise in the area, high school football, junior high football, peewee football. Football is what's mattered. Football in the Texas, in those areas, in the Big 12, that's what it was all about growing up. So their colleges reflect that. They care about football. That's why they became so good at football. The Big 10 cares about football and basketball. But if you look at the SEC in recent years, a conference that had devoted so much of its re- <clears throat> its resources, nearly all of it, to its football programs, suddenly with the advent of the SEC network and all this new television money, said, well, we can't just build $70 billion athletic facilities everywhere. We've got this money. We've got to be something to do with it. What if we started caring about basketball too? Let's go hire and some good basketball coaches and let's, exactly. let's start to like raise the level around here. And now you look at the SEC basketball and hey, it's not just Kentucky anymore. There's a lot of Alabama's in the top 10 for basketball too. So the Pac-12, if you look at how it is compared, football on the West Coast has just never been been what it is in the southeast or what it is in the midwest and if the pac-12 wants to catch up to the other power five conferences it needs to take that money that it has and start funneling it towards football first football second football third and that would kill a lot of the other success or at least greatly even out the playing field that the pac-12 has experienced in other olympic sports and i'm not sure that the pac-12 wants to do that nor am i sure that the pac-12 should want to do that i just think that if whoever the pac-12 brings in as the new commissioner if their goal is truly to be an elite power five football conference that is the first step that they have to take I don't know that they will. I, and again, I don't know that they have to. I just know that as a college football podcast and as college football writers and college football fans who approach it from a college football standpoint, I think we would like to see the Pac-12 take that step. But again, I can't tell them what's right for them. If you look at page views. Yeah, I was going to say analytics can tell a story that's going to dictate how mm-hmm. we talk about mm-hmm. it. It is not important. Yeah, I, I, I mean, okay, I will say that the diehard fans in the Pac-12 – are just as diehard as the ones in the Big Ten or the SEC. There are just a lot fewer of them, right? Like there's a couple people who will create new accounts to harass you on Twitter in the Pac-12. There are a lot more of them in the Big Ten or or the SEC after you block them, I mean. So (laughs) most people out there, and maybe it's just because that area of the country is like the weather's awesome, like they're kayaking on the weekends or something. Like, yeah, like, yeah, we want to go tailgate. We want to go watch our team. We're not going to send death threats to people on the internet if they say something mean about the Huskies, right? Like, it's just a different level. Like, I don't think that they derive a lot of their self-worth from the success or failure of their college ball team. And we love y'all who do that, by the way, because, like, we're getting paid because y'all care this much about it. Tell your but friends. Don't, yeah, there's just not that many of them out there. The other thing is that they do need USC to get back on top. It, we don't need the whole league to get fixed. It's almost like, like a baseball lineup, right? If you got a really good number three hitter, you know, then you got a decent four hitter. But if you got to move that four hitter to three spot, and then your sixth guy becomes your five, like if you have Oregon as your number two team in the conference behind a USC that's really cooking, that's a pretty good looking league. And then they're like, yeah, you know, Utah or Washington or Arizona State, that's a pretty nice three or four or five. The issue is when you don't have that top top team that plays at that kind of top five level, then then everybody else is like, yeah, they got some parity, got some depth, they're kind of out of the conversation the league's not taken quite as seriously, but like, I think most of their fans, they just don't have it. They don't have as many just absolute people who are living and dying with the success and the news of their team on a daily basis. It's absolutely annoying to me that this is the case. Like I, I, I it drives me nuts. Like I wish, and you are a hundred percent right, bud, because what's the difference success wise with, the Pac-12 and the ACC, or some years the Pac-12 and the Big 12, if you take out Oklahoma or you take out Clemson, you know, some t- and especially some years are better than others. Some years are worse than others. But a couple years ago, I mean, it was Clemson and there was a, dr- and there still is a dramatic drop off. But the, no, like, at least we have North Carolina getting better. At least there's some, you know, some, re- Miami's kind of getting back on track. Um, that if they could get USC back on track, would it be that simple? The fan thing is it's perplexing to me because there are some great, 
great. Co- Maybe it's because they're not in college towns. I mean, college, you know, college football is unique because you have to travel to get there. You have to fly to a big airport, Atlanta, and then you drive a couple hours to the middle of nowhere. Big 12, you got to fly to Oklahoma City and then you drive a couple hours. It's unique to get to some of these locations. Pac-12 is a lot of major cities where you kind of get buried in a Seattle, in a Los Angeles, in a Denver, in a Phoenix. And granted, they're all you know a little bit further, but they're not separate. You still have major sports leagues that it's expensive. You know, if you live in Alabama, you're going to be an Alabama or Auburn fan because you don't have the Rams or the, um, you know, another team to root for. And that's just football. We're not talking about NBA and baseball and other professional sports leagues. So I don't know if that's what explains it, but it's very like, and, and having covered it and having been there, like the bit, the best example I can give is I covered a, um, Mississippi State game. This was before Dak was there. They were okay. I think they were playing Arkansas and it was in Starkville. And I get there and they were both like, again, I got the lower tier games at ESPN early in my career. And I got to the stadium and I was even blown away at the tailgating scene. I'm like, what is going on? Like, is there, is it home? Is it parents weekend? Is it homecoming? They're like, nope, just a game. <laughs> you know, I'm like, all right, it's an experience. Then, you know, I had a Friday night game at Stanford where they were playing Washington State. Washington State was a top 25 team. Stanford had a pretty good, I think it was like a three-point spread. They were both pretty good teams. And it was empty at kickoff. And I'm, I'm looking around. I was giving Dave Fleming my broadcast. He went to Stanford. And he was telling me how great Stanford is. And he's like, he was warning me before the game. He's like, hey. And I'm like wearing him out. I'm like, you, how are you ever going to be taken seriously if you've got a game like this and nobody's here and he kept well, all the traffic in uh, Northern California is really bad. I'm like, well, that doesn't explain 300 people here at kickoff. <laughs> like it's just, you see, and that's just one example, you traffic know, and there's some Atlanta great places sucks too. <laughs> What's that? I said traffic in Atlanta sucks too. Yes, from back exactly. In the championship. Exactly. And there are some great experiences in the past. Corvallis have been there and it's great. And they can be, there are some great fans. I just, I wish they didn't all get bundled up in this Pac-12 doesn't care, but it's kind of – it's the reality of the situation. They And I, you can't replicate that. All this tradition that takes place with the tailgating the SEC, this is decades, you know, 40, 50, 60 years in the making where you gr- you grow up going to these games and, and, and experiencing these things. And I don't I don't know if you can just ingrain that in a conference. Yeah, and to touch, like, the, the point of, like, professional teams i'm not sure that's it either because if we just look in our lifetimes how many nfl teams have moved to los angeles and then left los angeles and then moved back you know what i mean it's my wife spent uh like a good 15 years living in southern california she's up and you know she she was up and down the west coast for work and the way that she sees her, she's explained it to me, is that it's just not that important there. Like she says, when USC was good during the dynasty years, people paid attention to it because it was cool. Because, you know, that's kind of just the way, especially in Southern California, it works. The people in the area are attracted to whatever the cool thing is at the time. And when you're winning, winning is cool. So she's like, well, there are certainly diehard fans of every single professional sports team. It's just the way sports are approached. Having grown up here in Chicago, living in Washington, D.C., living on the West Coast for work, she says sports are just treated entirely differently on the West Coast than they are everywhere else she's ever been. Like she says, even if you just listen to like the sports radio, it's it's two completely different animals in the way that people and and when you think of sports radio, like nobody who's listening to sports radio isn't like a diehard sports fan. You know right. what I mean? Yes. And she says, even the sports radio on the West Coast is still more laid back than what you experience in like Chicago or you would experience with like the fine bomb set. Although I don't think fine bomb is anything we should, you know, do like generally. So I, I just think that it's a cultural and a lifestyle thing where, yeah, they like sports, but it's not that important to them. It just doesn't mean as much. That should be their their slogan. It it just means more. Eh, We'll see (laughs) if my plans get canceled. You know, like if, if, if the hike doesn't work out, then we'll go and check it out. I mean, I've got, I've got some peers who I would say probably have a, as adults have a pac 12 approach to following North Carolina, like classmates that, 
It's like, nah, they're, they're more concerned with their bike rides and, and their family activities or whatever. And they, Birds. they, they might, they might not uh, know, they might not be able to name somebody on the offense beyond Sam Howe, Right. They, and they are not the ones that are downloading this podcast every single day and, and making it, as you mentioned, bud, part of their self-worth. I'm glad that we mentioned Corvallis. I'm glad that we mentioned Pullman, Eugene. There are awesome, awesome hotbed college town communities within the pac 12. But uh, my, like, bud, as you hit on earlier, I just think of it from the working at CBS since 2010, reading traffic reports, getting these lists where it's like, these are the 25 teams that draw the most interest. And that list of teams does not include what I, I don't, I cannot say off the top of my head, whether it's one or two, but the representation overwhelmingly slants towards the SEC and towards the big 10. And I, I think that that's why you start to see uh, some of the coverage and some of the, the general conversation sort of backs that up. So uh, we'll be interesting. Like I would love, as you mentioned, Tom, I would love to be able to see USC charge back to have Oregon at the top of the game. I promise you I'm watching like whether the PAC 12 stinks or not, I'm watching, you know, we're, we got locks on it. We are going to be dialed into the beeves and what Jonathan Smith has going into next season. That's just who we are because we're college football degenerates. (laughs) We're more fervent PAC 12 fans than most of the people who went to the PAC 12 schools. (laughs) Yes. Without a doubt. Uh, this has been fun. We will be back later this week to put a bow on the coaching carousel. Again, the news that we announced at the top of the show, Gus Malzahn uh, will be the next head coach at UCF. Congratulations to him. Coaching carousel complete. Get your grades ready. Don't forget, you can follow and stream us on Spotify. We know that you love to be able to get your podcast in the same place where you get a lot of your music. Spotify is a great place to do it. And we do appreciate all of those Spotify follows. If you're already subscribed on Apple Podcasts, go and go and hit it again. You know, you can be subscribed in two places. You know, no sweat there. It's it's better for you. Follow him on Twitter at Bud Elliott3. Follow him at Tom Fernelli. Follow him at Danny Cannell. Follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.